I'm Chris Reback. This is Investigating Breast Cancer, the podcast of the Breast Cancer Research Foundation and conversations with the world's leading scientists studying breast cancer prevention, diagnosis, treatment, survivorship, and metastasis. Broadly speaking, genetic testing has never been easier, even now with various levels of home kits. And many of us know that mutations in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes are the most well-known mutations that increase a person's risk of breast cancer. But what about the many other breast cancer risk gene mutations? A major cross-institution study of some 64,000 women recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine found, among other results, that some mutations that had previously been linked to breast cancer were found not to increase the risk of disease. What does this mean not only for genetic testing, but also how we should consider results? More significantly, what effect might this have on the personalization of risk? Dr. Katherine Nathanson was one of the study's principal researchers. She's a cancer geneticist, deputy director of the Abramson Cancer Center and the Pearl Basser Professor for BRCA-related research in the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. She not only runs a prominent research laboratory, but also maintains a clinical practice. She's been a BCRF investigator since 2005. Before my conversation with Dr. Nathanson, though, an ask from me to you. I hope you like these investigating breast cancer conversations. If so, I'd appreciate if you'd take a moment, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. The ratings really matter. They go a long way to helping other people find the podcast. Thank you. Here's my conversation with Dr. Katherine Nathanson. Dr. Nathanson, thanks for joining. I appreciate your time. Oh, glad to be here. Let's start by understanding some of the background of hereditary breast cancer and the mutations. Most of us have heard of mutations in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, but those aren't the only mutations, obviously, associated with breast cancer, are they? No. So we think about breast cancer susceptibility as a spectrum of susceptibility. So you have your high penetrance genes in which mutations are associated with a relatively high. So usually BRCA1 and 2, for example, that's associated with a high lifetime risk. Then you have your genes in which mutations are associated with what we call a moderate lifetime risk, sort of usually in the range of twofold. There is a gene that's sort of in between, which is called PUB2, but there is a gene that's associated with a moderate lifetime risk, which is CHECK2, ATM, and things like that. And then there's a set of what we call normal variation. Sometimes those variants are associated with minimally increased risk, but when we put all those sort of variants together, we get what's called a polygenic risk score or lots of variants together to try to think about risk. So the way that I talk about it, which hopefully is helpful, is everyone gets dealt a hand of cards. Sometimes when you get dealt a hand of cards, you get the ace of spades. You know what the ace of spades is. It's a really high card. It means something really important. That's your beer save one or two. You have a moderate penetrance gene. You get delta hand cards. You get a queen of clubs. Queen of clubs, it's helpful card if you're playing bridge, but it's not the best card. It's not the greatest card, but it's there. 
And then you get everything else, you know, your six of diamonds, your eight of spades, and those are sort of your normal variation. But when you put all those together, sometimes they can make a very powerful hand of cards. And so if you think about the different genes in which there are mutations, you can think that everybody gets dealt a mixture. Sometimes you get a different hands than others. Everybody gets dealt a mixture of those sort of hands. And some of them are high, some of them are moderate, and some of them are low penetrance. This is the way I sort of think about an analogy to help people out. It's really helpful. And it makes me wonder which hand is the most common and which hand is the most worrisome. So the hand that's most common is probably like the hand, I don't know if anyone plays bridge, right? The hand that you get the bunch of dreck, you know, and yep. it's like, you're just playing a defensive. And that, in fact, in this sense is probably the better hand, right? And the more unusual hand is when you get sort of the high cards and it's much more unusual to carry a BRC1 and 2 mutation than it is to get the sort of regular hand of, you know, assorted not so great cards. How would you characterize the extent to which those mutations, the extent to which they increase breast cancer risk or are associated with breast cancer risk compared to the BRCA1 and BRCA2. So like the queen of clubs in the analogy yes. that we were yes, just please. using. So those increase your risk modestly. So it depends on the gene, but instead of, for example, you have to remember that any woman in the U.S. has a 12% lifetime risk of breast cancer. So just to point that out, right? So these increase your risk potentially to 20 to 25%. That's higher, and we can show in large studies significantly higher but it's not nearly as high as if you're, say, one or two mutation. And in that context, actually, the other cards are much more important because we talk about modifiers. So we know that in addition, it's a hand of cards, right? So in addition to having that ace of spades, your other cards matter. But when you have something like a queen of clubs, the other cards matter more because it's really, there's not such a dominant sort of gene, a mutation in a gene, the other things matter and affect how that sort of works. The, the interplay, modern pension genes more. The, yeah. the interplay among them. Yes, exactly. So earlier this year, you and others published a population study mm -hmm. of, of more than 64,000 women um, mm -hmm. in the New, New England Journal of Medicine. You analyzed the data from the carrier study, cancer mm -hmm. risk estimates related to susceptibility. What did you find and why was it so groundbreaking? So the reason it was groundbreaking was because it actually was a population-based study. So much of our estimates of risk actually don't come from people in the general population. They come from women who have a family history, who are collected on the basis of family history, or um, some of the recent studies from women who've had genetic testing. And usually you don't, maybe not these days, but used to be you didn't just walk in and get genetic testing, right? Anybody. So they were biased estimates, biased in terms of who was high risk. And self-selection so, of who was going and getting the testing. Exactly, exactly. And so these were a number of, and I, I just want to emphasize, huge team of people worked on this project, really would not have been possible without collaboration. Um, the senior author was Fergus Couch from Mayo Clinic. I'm on the executive committee after meeting every week for five years, but we got somewhere. But the people who ran the studies and the most important people who collected samples from patients and the patients who contributed to those studies. So hugely important. You can't do it within any aspect of that. 
so the point was that these were very large, mostly older women who had breast cancer, who either actually were followed prospectively and then got breast cancer. So there is some cohorts of studies, something called the nurses health study, where they look at all the nurses and they follow them prospectively over a number of years. And then Mm. some of them get breast cancer, for example. And those studies are very helpful to understand if you're in the general population, what's the risk of these mutations in someone who doesn't have a family history or doesn't present to a high-risk clinic. And so that's actually why it was particularly important. And not surprisingly, it showed that people with a family history have a higher risk of having a mutation. So the idea was that we found that women with breast cancer from the population, about 5% of women overall, and mostly these are older women, had mutations, whereas about 1.5% of women without breast cancer had these mutations. So significantly more frequent, but not high numbers of women. And then we were able to sort of identify what the risk associated with each of these mutations is, or mutations in each of these genes, I should say, more accurately is. I'm going to tell you what I think is really important about this study, which I think is very hard to get from the news. news yes, please. I think that there are two parts that are very important. One is this is 32,000 cases and 32,000 controls, despite only five genes overall were significantly associated with breast cancer risk. So the number actually of genes wasn't all that high. Now, there are some additional genes if you looked at ER negative and triple negative disease that were associated with disease. But the other part is that we routinely have women who are getting these huge A-gene panels for breast cancer susceptibility, and many of the genes on the panels were not associated with breast cancer susceptibility in this study. And I think the negative aspect of this is actually really, really important. Important. What do you mean by the negative? What do you mean by the negative aspect? So, for example, I'll give you a good example. So, there's been a lot of discussion are mutations in a gene called NBN associated with breast cancer risk? And there's back, forth, is it associated with disease? Our study and the accompanying study, Bridges, which was done in European group, definitively showed no association with disease. So, one of the things that is really important is that especially when you're looking at these women who are getting, you know, because it's easy to do the testing, these big gene panels, some of the genes were basically ruled out as being associated with risk. And that actually, honestly, to me, is the most important part of this, because most of the ones that we associate with risk, we knew were associated with risk, but some of the other ones were, some people said yes, some people said no, we're more borderline. And we were able to really definitively say these are not associated with risk. And I would have to assume that in terms of levels of anxiety, intrusion of care but, that may or may not have been needed, I would think, you correct me please if I have it wrong, that for years probably you had women who would get those results and there was uncertainty and stress, anxiety, and perhaps even more. And you were now kind of able to say, we don't need to worry about that. Exactly. To me, that's actually in part the most important part of this, that we were able to really definitively show that they're not associated. I think it helps us tell us a little bit about who, although it doesn't really change the guidelines substantially, about who should be tested. That's important too, like who should be tested. Women with ER positive breast cancer over the age of 65 should not be tested. And, you know, those kinds of things, that's important too. I think there are another, a series, I'll say, of follow-up studies 
some of which are out, some of which are not out. So there was also a study that looked at the rate of mutations in Black women, and one that looked at the rates of compared within the carriers group, the rates of mutations in Black and white women, there were no differences, which is also very important to say. No, the rates, there was some variation within the genes, but overall, there was no significant difference between Black and white women. Very important to say. And we have some studies that are accepted, which are coming out soon, actually looking at the non, what I call the sort of lower cards, but the polygenic risk scores and how the polygenic risk score looks in this data set. How does it influence risk? It's clearly much more important in, as I said, if you have a lower or moderate penetrance gene than it is if you have a high penetrance gene. So those things are important and sort of looking at the rates of mutations in women over 65, very important, mostly if you have triple negative disease, not so much if you don't. But to my mind, I think that part of the thing that people, for me, as someone who clinically sees patients who get huge panels, having really good negative data is really, really important because it helps tell people, we don't think this is causing your disease and you don't need to have surgery. You don't need to have other kinds of interventions because we think this is, you know, this has to significantly alter the way one thinks about the personalization of risk. Right. And the personalization of risk, I think is really, really interesting. Lots of people are very interested in personalization of risk and there's lots of ways to approach personalization of risk. So first of all, do you carry a high moderate penetrance gene? What is your polygenic risk score? So we know that in women with a high polygenic risk score, their risk of breast cancer is as high as someone who has a moderate penetrance gene. If you have a low polygenic risk score, one of the things that they've thought about is decreasing mammographic screening in women who have low polygenic risk scores. Very hard in the U.S., particularly to de-escalate things like that. But it is definitely something that I think in other countries may happen, that Mm -hmm. if you have a low polygenic risk score, a low score, low risk of breast cancer, you may de-escalate or decrease screening. So you think now we have genes, the genes and the variants sort of affect each other, so they're not independent. Mammographic density is a known risk factor. Obviously, things that we also think about smoking, alcohol, you know, all those kinds of things are risk factors. And even within genes, the different mutations don't all have the same risk. And so there's lots of ways that people are thinking about how can we better personalize risk. But I think the thing that we have to think about along with personalizing risk is what are we going to do with that personalized risk? Do we feel comfortable if we say someone's at a really low risk saying, well, you need less mammography? You know, I think that's something as a- Very hard to do. Very hard to do. Very hard to do. These are complicated questions. I don't have the answers for. Well, the complicated questions you understand, doctor, are your fault. If you hadn't participated in these studies, we'd have simple questions and very unclear answers. Instead, we've got- Well, yeah, it's complicated questions. (laughs) Complicated questions. You mentioned a moment ago, some of the- either currently ongoing or potentially beginning studies. And I believe, and you correct me, please, if I have this wrong, that one of them is one that you and your team are launching around a study of very high-risk women with early onset breast cancer to identify more about what drives the risks of breast cancer in these women. Do I have that right? Yeah. So we've done this large study. We know there are several things. There are 
probably some rare unidentified variants that are associated with disease. Now, those could come in several flavors. So is it possible that there are additional breast cancer susceptibility genes that are rare and unidentified? Definitely possible. But you need to really look at very high-risk women who have been screened negative, and that's something that we're, we're doing. And I think that the other thing that we've also thought about is there are some limitations to the way we currently look at the known genes, technological limitations. They're not state-of-the-art changes over time. I, I think yes. that's really important. And so are there variants in those genes or associated with those genes that might be associated with risk that we're missing, which is definitely possible? in women with breast cancer. And so that's something that we're also interested in looking at. And we're starting to do something called whole genome sequencing. So not just looking at the genes, but looking at the sequences between the genes to see if there is variation that might potentially be associated with risk. There are also what we call rearrangements. So we know, for example, in BRCA1, that if you think about it like a sentence, you can have misspellings in the sentence, but you can also have missing words or missing phrases. And so we're very good at getting the misspellings. We're pretty good at getting some of the missing words, but sometimes we're not so good at getting the large phrases or rearrangements. Or if they're, for example, between the words or something like a con, you know, <laughs> comma, how far off I take this analogy, right? that we don't pick those up so well. So we're sort of looking to see if some of the families have variants that are associated with that. Those are harder to prove as being functional. So that's one of the things that we think about. How did you come to focus your work so significantly on high-risk women? And I know you deal as well in other types of cancer, but in high-risk areas is what I oh, have sure. taken. Yeah, I'm a geneticist. So I decided very early in my career, actually, when I was in medical school, that I wanted to go into genetics. I was always fascinated by genetics sort of growing up. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. And I decided in medical school to go into genetics. So I'm actually double trained in internal medicine and clinical genetics, which is relatively pretty unusual. There's probably less than 50, maybe less than 100 people in the country. And so then when I decided to, I trained in genetics, I did research training. And so I ended up doing cancer genetics for a variety of different reasons. And that's sort of where I've sat ever since, but I really approach it or come to it from someone who's really trained as a geneticist rather than an oncologist kind of perspective. So I've been doing it a long time. And, you know, my clinical practice actually deals with a lot of other hereditary cancers as well. Fascinating to me that even as a kid, genetics was what interested you, yeah. drove you. So it was never going to be opera singing or- Oh, well, God, no, you wouldn't morning. want that. So as well, there's an intersectionality as I'm learning about you and reading about you that you do. One is you just talked about it, the translational medicine. You run a lab, but you also see patients. In addition, you don't focus, it seems, on just one type of hereditary cancer. You focus on several. Are there learnings? Is that just because you get bored easily or <laughs> are there learnings and insights that you gain from? So I would say, is it because I get, I think it's more historical. I sort of ended up doing lots of different things for sort of various historical reasons. And I'm actually like doing things that are a little different now because I'm very interested in really trying to improve genetics generally. I think we really have to be prepared for genetics for everyone. And that's something that's really important to me. 
I have found in my science, however, that you never know what you're working on comes back to what you're working on before. I think the biggest analogy I worked on actually a study that actually has led to a a drug for down the road, but for uh, renal cancer. But part of the study, all of a sudden we found BRCA1, like in this study of renal cancer, and it has to do with DNA damage, and it happens to be important there. And I thought, my God, you know, I try to do whatever I do, and it sort of all comes back together. You know, but it is important. Like, I see neuroendocrine tumors, and one of the things that's really happening clinically to me is that people are getting these big panels. They get mutations in a gene called SDHA. SDHA is associated with pheochromocytomas and paragangliomas, but all the women that I see have breast cancer and they got this big panel. So we're now trying to figure out and make sure we don't think it's associated with breast cancer, but we're doing some large scale studies to make sure that I can confidently tell a woman who comes in with SDHA that's not associated with her breast cancer risk. You know, I feel like it all links back together because I can do that because of all the work that I've done at breast cancer already. And I want to make sure that I'm counseling my patients appropriately. So I feel like it all seems to intersect and come back together on some level. It seems like it. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, what role has BCRF played in your research? Uh, I have to say, I will tell this to anybody, BCRF has been the most important thing to my research. I had a difficult early career for lots of reasons. But BCRF provided funding for me at a critical juncture in my career. I would not still be sitting here doing what I do if it wasn't for BCRF. I absolutely feel that that's true. I feel like they have been incredibly important over my career in terms of the support that they've provided. Like when I was an assistant professor, sort of struggling, and now I'm, I mean, I don't think of myself as that much, but now 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 I'm a deputy director of a cancer center, and I wouldn't be there if I wasn't for BCRF. Well, we all benefit from the work that you do. Thank you for that. Thank you for taking the time today with me. More than happy. It was great. That was my conversation with Dr. Katherine Nathanson. My thanks to Dr. Nathanson for joining and you for listening. To learn more about breast cancer research or to subscribe to our podcast, go to bcrf.org slash podcasts. 